Hi everyone, welcome to the 2021 land application training. Um, my name is Amy Schmidt and I'm going to be starting us off today uh, talking about <clears throat> just manure contaminants in general, um, why we should care about those, what the risks are, um, the transport mechanisms after the manure has been land applied, and uh, some of the practices that we know that can help control losses of these contaminants to surface water. Um, I am uh, an associate professor in biological systems engineering and a livestock manure management specialist on campus at Lincoln. And um, I have my contact information at the end of the slides and welcome you to reach out to me if you have questions. So <clears throat> when we talk about manure contaminants, um, we typically think of nitrogen and phosphorus. Those are the um, two main nutrients in livestock manure that are um, that we we try to control with our nutrient management plans. Um, but there's other contaminants that aren't necessarily regulated per se, but they are their concerns um, if they reach water bodies. And so um, a lot of these are associated with um, any kind of fecal waste material, whether it's livestock or human or uh, domestic or wild animals. Um, what I want you to take away from this discussion is kind of a general understanding of why these different contaminants matter, um, which ones are actually regulated under your operating permits, and why uh, the way we handle manure contributes to um, the potential for contaminants to reach surface water. So, we know what nitrogen and phosphorus are. We, we work with those all the time. So I'm not going to talk about those, um, but I would like to talk about E. coli. Um, if you look at the Environmental Protection Agency's list of impaired water bodies, you'll likely find several water bodies, both within and outside of Nebraska, that are listed as impaired because of E. coli. So most strains of E. coli, and there's, there's a bunch, um, e. coli lives in the uh, intestinal tract of all warm-blooded animals, so people and livestock and uh, wild animals and, and domestic pets. Um, and so while most of the strains of E. coli that um, exist are not pathogenic, meaning they don't um, pose a risk of making us sick, there are uh, some dangerous strains of E. coli, and they're capable of causing severe illness in people um, and even uh, even death if, if um, they can't be uh, treated. So E. coli, the presence of E. coli in water indicates that there's some contamination of that water by fecal material. So we call this an indicator organism. So obviously contamination of water with fecal material is a, is a health problem. Uh, whether it's in a drinking water reservoir where um, it could be ingested or in um, a surface water body that's used for recreational activities. Um, we want to keep uh, manure, fecal material, out of these uh, water sources. And the easiest way for regulators to test to see if that contamination has occurred is by testing for E. coli presence um, in those water bodies. 
Okay, so what other um, pollutants do we think about um, in manure, or maybe we haven't thought about, but they are a concern? You know, there's pharmaceutical compounds, anything that is um, given to the animals as, as medication that's not completely metabolized by the body is excreted. Um, there's a natural and synthetic steroid hormone. So our bodies, any living creature has steroid, has hormones in their body. And again, we all excrete those, um, those compounds in um, feces and urine. So it's, it's a given that those would be in livestock manure as well. Um, cleaning products, disinfectants and surfactants that are used to um, sanitize or clean livestock facilities are going to be um, in that manure, that's that stored manure as well. And then um, there's antimicrobial resistant organisms and the, the genetic elements that cause a bacteria to be resistant to an antibiotic. You've probably heard about these, you know, antimicrobial resistant, antibiotic resistance in, in recent years, and that's getting to be a bigger, bigger deal. So again, there are a lot of things in manure that <clears throat> aren't necessarily regulated per se. They, they don't get included in your nutrient management plan, but controlling um, losses of nitrogen and phosphorus, which, which is part of your nutrient management plan, also can um, help limit losses of these other contaminants to the environment. So let's think about how contaminants move. Um, essentially, there's two ways, right? Once manure is applied to the soil surface, um, the only way that manure or any contaminants in it are going to leave the site is one, if there's runoff from that site, um, and two, if there's erosion. So liquid, um, liquid runoff, there's different contaminants and um, pollutants that dissolve in liquid and are carried in the liquid form. Others absorb to soil particles, and so they're only going to move if the soil particles move. So erosion and runoff are kind of our two um, issues that we have to battle as far as keeping these um, compounds out of water. So when we think about our strategies for reducing surface water pollution, we want to essentially we want to keep any runoff or erosion out of surface water bodies. And one of the ways we can do that is just by slowing down the flow of, um, of any runoff uh, or any erosion, any, any uh, movement of soil and uh, liquid off of that site. We can do this by protecting the soil surface, um, creating a barrier between the production area or the, uh, the cropping area and water. <clears throat> and as your nutrient management plan, um, lays out, we deliver nutrients when and where and how they are needed so that we're not um, putting excess into the environment that's then going to end up um, leaving the field or the production area uh, with runoff and erosion. So let's think through some of the, um, the best management practices that we currently have in place. And these, these aren't new, um, but you know, residue cover why do, why do we leave residue cover on the soil surface? Well, one of the reasons is that it protects the surface of the soil. Um, so unprotected soil is going to have particles of soil displaced when there's rainfall, this is the impact of rainfall or irrigation. Um, and when we have residue cover, we kind of protect the surface of that soil. So we, we reduce soil erosion, 
Um, we reduce the losses of contaminants that are attached to those soil particles. Um, and of course, there's a number of other benefits of residue cover, but from a nutrient standpoint, this is um, kind of our main, our main focus is, is limiting erosion and, and allowing uh, liquid to soak in and stay in place where the plants can use it rather than um, running off of a surface that's not, not protected. We talked about a couple slides ago, I mentioned creating a barrier between the production area and uh, water sources. So conservation buffers are uh, pretty simple and straightforward practice, been around for a long time. Um, anytime we can um, create some vegetation, some buffer area of vegetation between our crop field and, um, and a stream, which is, is not shown on the screen here, but Anything that's leaving this, this crop field as, so, as soil erosion or liquid runoff has to pass through this barrier in order to get to uh, the surface water. So again, we're slowing that, that flow down um, by creating a barrier. And when we slow down the flow of water, uh, sediment is, is more likely to settle out and liquid is able to infiltrate. And um, so we can kind of control both the uh, liquid and solid fractions of, um, of runoff that, that contribute to carrying contaminants from the field to a water body. Reduced tillage, um, again, is similar to the residue management. It, you leave residue, crop residue, on the surface of soil um, when you don't till. And so that, again, is a barrier that protects the surface of the soil from uh, wind and, and rain um, erosion effects. Um, but the other thing that reduced tillage does is, is it keeps the soil um, more stable. More, you get more stable soil aggregates, so you're not breaking up the soil every time you go through and till. And when you have better soil structure, um, you again reduce erosion because your soil particles are heavier, more, um, more connected together, larger aggregates, and that is harder for um, harder to be carried off of the field as erosion. So, um, reduced tillage is a is another practice that uh, wasn't necessarily developed to control contaminant losses um, from our uh, from manure application, but it controls nutrient losses. Therefore, it controls um, losses of these other contaminants as well. Um, so application timing, we know that um, the longer you wait, the longer period that there is between when manure is applied to a soil and when um, a rainfall event occurs that causes runoff, the, the less chance you have of losing contaminants from the soil surface um, due to that runoff. Um, so just, you know, using a, the forecast and trying to um, identify a day for manure application that uh, gives you a window of at least 24 hours um, before there's any rainfall expected. So manure setback, um, application setbacks, these are um, applicable to all animal feeding operations that are operating um, under a permit in the state. Um, Again, this, this comes back to leaving some barrier between where manure is applied and where it can leave land and, and enter surface water. Um, so the farther you stay back doesn't mean water is not going to run across that, um, 
that land that hasn't had manure applied. It just means there's more opportunity for anything that's carried by uh, the water uphill from there to settle out or be um, absorbed into the soil as it moves across the soil that hasn't had manure applied. Um, for a large animal feeding operation, the state uh, requires a hundred feet setback from a surface water body. Um, that's quite a bit to take out of production, right? So an alternative to that is to have a vegetative buffer around the um, around those sensitive areas that's 35 feet wide. Um, and we talked about vegetative buffers a few uh, slides ago. It doesn't really make sense, but um, small and medium operations have a setback of 30 feet, whether there's a vegetative buffer or not. So um, not all regulations are based on science necessarily. This is a good example of uh, doesn't necessarily make sense that manure from a small operation um, can be applied within 30 feet of a, a water body, but manure from a large operation can't be applied within 100 feet. But that's the regulation, and that's what we have to follow. And so, um, so those values need to be kept in mind during uh, manure management activities. The method of application is another um, another factor that can affect. Uh, contaminant movement. Um, obviously when we put, put manure uh, below the soil surface via injection or um, uh, incorporation, we're protecting some of those uh, manure components from wind and water erosion. And so, um, you know, a surface application again leaves those chemicals or those contaminants exposed and more likely to leave the, leave the field via runoff or erosion. Um, so if surface application is used and there's no tillage involved, which we talked about no-till being a benefit, um, then, then you need to look at do I have some vegetative buffer areas, do I have setbacks that are appropriate so that even though I'm not tilling this in and I'm um, uh, leaving it on the soil surface, if there's a rainfall event, it's less likely to reach um, uh, surface water because of other practices that are in place. So um, I mentioned earlier, you know, we have two ways that these contaminants move. So we have those that are dissolved in water and move as um, runoff from a field. And then those that are absorbed to soil particles and therefore they're going to move when there's erosion. Um, so what we've talked about the last, you know, 10 minutes or so here is ways to reduce erosion, ways to reduce runoff. And if we're Practicing um, these methods to reduce losses of nitrogen and runoff, phosphorus uh, and erosion, we're also helping to control losses of microbes and other dissolved chemicals, um, chemicals that are absorbed to soil particles, the sediment itself, our topsoil. So um, what I want you to take away from this is that practices that are recommended in your nutrient management plan to uh, control losses of nitrogen and phosphorus from your uh, your crop production area and uh, and from the uh, animal production area, those are also helping control a lot of other contaminants that um, we may not hear a lot about, but they're really important to water quality. So I just want that to um, be something that you keep in the back of your mind as you're implementing these practices that they're doing more than just what um, what may be clear at the moment as far as the nutrient, um, nutrient contamination reduction.
So um, I'm going to wrap up with that. Um, as I said, my, my contact information is here. I welcome you to send an email or give me a call if you have questions or comments. And um, otherwise, thanks so much for your time.